blood, that you cleanse us from our sins, that we are pure and spotless. And, and God, we thank you that you sent Jesus as the word for us. The word has become flesh. And Jesus, we thank you that you willingly descended and left your glory to be the word for us. And Holy Spirit, we pray now that through your word that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to respond, that we might walk forth from this place uh, more like Jesus. And we pray that you would be with these children and the friends of Jesus, and that you would meet us as well through your word, your living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have options here. You can stay, you can go. It's good. It's all good. We worship a God of signs. We worship a God of visible expressions and symbols that represent and point to and prove the spiritual realities about himself. The God of the scriptures is not a God who tells people to believe without evidence and proofs. And while Christianity is a faith that we are called to do. It is a faith grounded in historic, verifiable, public signs, wonders, and miracles. And John tells us why he wrote uh, this account, this gospel account. And he says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. And so our God, he pursues followers who seek a rational, credible, experiential and working faith, and Jesus does not disappoint us. And so we have reviewed the accounts of Jesus turning the water into wine, of healing the sick, of curing the lame, and uh, the last time we met, he created the original fast food experience when he multiplied the boys' lunch uh, to feed the 15 to 20,000 people. Now, all of these signs point to this fact, that Jesus is more than a man, that he is the God-man who had the spirit without limit. Uh, there are no limits upon his power or his abilities. But in all such signs that we find that John gives us about Jesus, there are also signs of his grace, his abundant grace. Uh, the wonders and the works that he did were to benefit and to bless people. And so John 1.16 says, from the fullness of his grace, we all have received blessing after another. And the original language says, we have all received grace upon grace. Uh, we have experienced the bountiful goodness, the favor, the delight upon God, upon the bountiful goodness, favor, and delight upon God. And so Jesus comes with overflowing grace upon grace. Our problem is, we just live often as desperate and needy people, and we forget the grace of God. And so we need reminders frequently about who the God is that we worship, about who the Jesus who came. And so today we see another expression of this Jesus, this God of the signs, coming to his disciples in the storm and on the water. Let's look at John chapter 6, starting with verse 14. 
And this happened right after the multitude were fed. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea had become rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Some of us learn from our errors and mistakes and foolish ways, but others of us take more time. We're more dense-headed and need stronger reminders, and we find ourselves repeating the same foolish or stupid things over again. And the wonderful thing about the God of all grace is that he continues to engage and to meet us and to grow us in our faith. And here's a question. If you had a flight that left BWI at 6.15 a.m., what time should you be at the airport? 4.30, 5.15, all right, so some say an hour beforehand, some say an hour and a half beforehand. Either one of those is probably a good thing. And so a couple weeks ago, uh, I went to visit my parents, my aging parents in Florida. My flight was to leave at 6.15 a.m. That's the departure of the flight. And so I hadn't really did the right calculations. Uh, now, Don Morris had passed the, the day before, and I was somewhat distracted. And, and so when I pulled out of my driveway at 5.05 on Burke Avenue, I started to do some immediate calculations. <laughs> and I said, this is going to be really tough to do this. And I started to pray. <laughs> I said, Lord, if there's any way, could you get me there? Uh, and so, you know, go through the tunnel, get to the parking lot, had to park my car, had to take a transit to the terminal, then had to go and check in my bags, and then, uh, you know, then I get to the, uh, the gate, or not the gate, but the, the security clearance, and there's a huge line. And I'm looking at this line. I'm thinking, there is, this is going to, I don't think I'm going to make it. And so there was this lady that happened to be nearby from uh, some type of company that called Clear Me, which is some type of a security clearance, quick security clearance that could get you to the front of the line. And I said, hey, can you get me to the front of the line today? And she said, uh, yes, come and follow me, and we'll fill out this application, and we can, we can usher you right there. So I got out of line, and I started to fill out this application. Well, this application took a lot longer than I expected. <laughs> she had a whole slew of security questions. She started to take all of my fingerprints, and they weren't getting printed 
clearly enough, and so she had to take them over again, both thumbprints. They had an eye scan, and I'm really getting, like, I said, I have to go now. And she says, just in a little while, sir. And so even, finally, I got through. I got through the security, and I am running as fast as I can to the gate. And the gate happened to be the furthest one away in the terminal. And just before they closed the door, somehow I went through and sat down in that seat. And I looked at my watch, and it was, five, it was, it was uh, 6.03. Somehow I made it within an hour for my driveway. Now, I can only tell you, as I sat there, I said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you know, I said, this is, it felt like I was being carried uh, through an amazing amount of trials. And the, I would like to tell you that that's the only time I've ever pushed the edges of time. Uh, but it's not. And unfortunately, I am often dense-headed when I start calculating uh, time issues, and I think that I can get a lot more done in less time. But one of the things I am very grateful for is that the God of the Scriptures uh, and the stories in the Gospels is often stories about Jesus graciously working with often foolish and dense-headed disciples who keep making the same errors over and over again, but he engages them to grow their faith. And Jesus, you know, he doesn't come to us like a stern judge, but he comes to us like a faithful friend, a loving father, a committed coach who loves us, who loved them in order to grow them and to grow us in our faith. And so Jesus used this miraculous appearance, the sign of walking on, a, on the water, to address their spiritual dullness. We find in the account, the parallel account in Mark chapter 6, verse 51, in this parallel text, it says that Jesus, when he climbed into the boat with them, they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand. And so in Mark's account, he is making the connection between the feeding of the multitude and their hardened hearts uh, when they were on this turbulent sea when Jesus entered the boat. John Gill says this, For their hearts were hardened or blinded, not by sin or against Christ, but there was a great deal of, of dullness and stupidity and want of attention in them. The glory of Christ, which he had manifested, showed forth in his miracles, which they saw daily, was attended to and acknowledged by them, but they did not acknowledge it. They didn't put it together, that this Jesus, who they, they just saw just a few hours beforehand, turned the boy's lunch into a, a feast for five, 15,000 to 20,000 people. They didn't put it together that well, you know, maybe Jesus is powerful. Maybe Jesus is in charge. Maybe we shouldn't be so overwhelmed. But they were. There was a spiritual dullness. And just like the disciples, we all tend to spiritual dullness. We forget. We don't remember. We're not sensitive to what God has done in our lives in the past. We don't trust him for our futures and each day's challenge continues to surprise us or overwhelm us. And so we panic or we get anxious. 
And we say, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why is God doing this, allowing this? Where is God? Maybe God isn't here, and so we wonder. And we say we believe, but we often don't live like we believe. We don't pray like we believe. We don't dream or plan or engage our faith like we believe. And in many ways, we function like practical atheists. Instead of living out of the sensational reality of God who has worked, is working, and continues to work in our lives. But the great thing about the scriptures, about Jesus, is that God does not leave us in our state of spiritual dullness or our calloused hearts. Jesus, the supreme faith-building coach, creates, he creates opportunities to grow our faith. And so here we see Jesus meeting his disciples in the storm. And Jesus meets us in our storms. And the reason that he meets them in their storms and us in our storms is to grow our faith. And he grows our faith by testing us. He grows our faith by terrifying us. And he grows our faith in order to comfort us so that we would depend upon him. So Jesus tests us. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat, started crossing, and it was dark, and the sea became rough because of the strong wind was blowing. In other words, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> and we find ourselves a lot in these dark and stormy nights. But we need to see the divine fingerprints who places us in such experiences. In Mark's account, it says... Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of him. And so Jesus actually, this was his mission. This was his discipleship event for these guys. He made them get in the boat to go across the lake. And it was dark, and it was stormy. Now, while there is no darkness in God, he will use darkness, and he will use chaos and hardships and trials and sufferings and life threatening experiences in our lives to test us and to develop and to grow our faith. That's, that is the, the nature of our God. That is the teachings of Scripture. God will test his chosen vessels, his precious treasures. Proverbs 17, 3 says, The crucibles for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Uh, Isaiah 48 says, I have refined you, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And a psalmist cries out to God, test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. And so God says, okay, I will. <laughs> I will test you. Uh, it's interesting, in the passage of Luke, of uh, Mark, um, you know, John 6, right before this event, after the, in the feeding of the 5,000, you know, this multitude is before Jesus, he knows they're hungry, and he turns to Philip, and he says, he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And verse 6 says, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And so he was testing Philip. Uh, Philip well, he could have possibly responded, well, Jesus, you saw, we saw you do the other miracles. You turned the water into wine, you healed the sick, you, you made the lame walk. You're, you're a great provider, you're, you are a creator, you're the man, you can do this, Jesus. But no, Philip didn't have any expressions of faith. He said, well, you know, eight months' wages wouldn't even 
purchase enough food for each person here to get a bite. And then Andrew chimes in, and he says, hey, here's a little boy with a lunch. You know, his mom packed him five little morsels of bread and a couple of fish. You know, he, he kind of wanted to expand the absurdity of trying to feed these people. And, and he says, but, you know, what, what can that do? What, you know, how can that go so far? The fact is, none of his disciples were looking to Jesus to solve their problem. Nobody suggested they, well, hey, let's have a prayer meeting and ask God to do something great here. They didn't say, Jesus, unless you act, nobody gets fed. We're all dead here. Now, on the surface, that's what they were looking at. They were looking on the surface of things. They were looking at what they had in their hands, what they had in their pockets, but they did not look at who they had in their midst. They were one-dimensional. They were earthbound disciples. And so we see that the, Philip failed the test. The disciples failed the test. Uh, you know, Jesus even provides for them 12 baskets of leftovers to remind them that he is a faithful God. He will provide for them. They probably took these 12 baskets with them in the boat. They had reminders of God's provision and faithfulness. God will take care of his laborers. But they didn't get it. So Jesus personally dismisses the crowd. They wanted to make him president by force. Well, he would be a great presidential candidate. He would be a great king, you know. That's a funny line, isn't it? They were going to make him king by force. <laughs> well, you know, Jesus wasn't going to play their games. He sends them off. He goes to the mountain uh, to pray. And uh, we find here that Jesus will not only test his disciples and test us, but he will terrify us. He will. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And the word frightened means uh, to be struck with fear, to be seized with alarm, to be terrified. Now, I wonder what Jesus had been praying to his father when he went to the mountain to pray. You know, often we find uh, some of the prayers are recorded and often those prayers that Jesus had with his father were all about his disciples. He's always thinking about his disciples, praying for his disciples. And, uh, and maybe the father was saying to Jesus, they're not getting it, are they, son? And Jesus, maybe he said, I know, dad, they need more time, you know. They need more experience. They need to be stretched more. I'm working. I'm working on them. And then maybe they were talking about the next discipleship event. And they said, what about a dark and stormy night? <laughs> okay, that's a great idea. We'll scare the heebie-jeebies out of them. These rough, tough fishermen, these tax collectors, these zealots as they are, we'll scare the socks off them, and then we'll bring you front and center, and maybe then they'll have more respect for you. Maybe then they'll honor you and hallow you. Maybe then they'll get it. Maybe then they'll look to you first instead of last. Now, one caution that we should have is that we should not think of God overwhelming us with challenges like in the Truman Show. Some of you maybe saw that movie years ago with Jim Carrey who played Truman Burbank, a man who spent his life from infancy to 30 years old in the world's largest studio in order to create this longest-running TV reality show uh, in order to entertain the masses. 
God is not a utilitarian God who uses us to get kicks out of us or watching us face traumas. God confronts us with overwhelming challenges because he loves us. He is committed to our growth. Hebrews 12 says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons or daughters that he loves. Our Father disciplines us for a little while as he thinks best, but our, our fathers discipline us for a little while as they think best, but God disciplines us for our own good that we might share in his holiness. And so Jesus, he sends them out. He puts them in the boat. He sends them out. They're straining at the oar. It's, they're halfway through the lake. They should have been already on the other side by normal rowing. It's about seven miles across. They're halfway through. The wind is just pushing them back. They hardly are making any progress. They're exhausted. In the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level, and so the, the winds that come down from the southeastern tablelands often will rise up quickly and can create these storm events. And here they are, they're exhausted, they're at their wits' ends, and they're halfway through uh, this lake, and they're not making hardly any progress. It is between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. I wonder what those fishermen those strong men were saying in the boat over those hours as they were straining at the oars. I wonder what they were talking about to each other in that boat. I wonder, you know, well, how come Jesus sent us out here? You know, where is he? You know, I mean, this, he sent us out here alone, and we're straining at the oars. And they probably, I doubt if they were really, like, saying, hey, I think that we should pray. I wonder if anybody initiated any prayer in that boat. Uh, it doesn't say anything, but instead of crying out and calling out and to acknowledge their defeat, they just kept straining at the oars. Uh, it was them against the elements. They're going to be real men in this boat, and they're not going to cry out. They're just going to keep working harder and harder. What is it about men? We don't ask for directions when we get lost. We have a hard time acknowledging that we need help. Uh, we have a hard time acknowledging that we are weak. Uh, I remember uh, we took our kids uh, when our oldest was about 12 or 13 and our youngest was about 5 or 6 to, uh, to the uh, various national parks. And we were at the Badlands, which uh, is out in South Dakota. And the Badlands uh, are like these geographic logical rock formations, these mountains and, and all the sedimentary levels. But one of the things about the Badlands, it look, it's called Badlands because it looks bad. <laughs> it's, there's no trees, and it's just all this rocky uh, terrain of these, these big hills and mountains and valleys. And, and we went to this camp, the park, uh, and there are no trees. And we, we, we put our tents on the top of this knoll, which was a beautiful, it was a beautiful afternoon, and there wasn't much wind that, you know, that afternoon, and we set our tents up, and, and so we crashed, and we had two tents, uh, a tent for our children, our four kids, and a tent for the adults. You know, we were going to have our own space, and so Marie and I is in one tent, our kids in the other, well, that night, the wind kind of, kind of started to emerge and started ripping through that whole region, and of course, because there's no trees, you just felt the force, and it kept getting stronger and stronger. And we are in the tent. We are awake. Uh, we're wondering how our kids are doing. Maria says, I'm out of here. 
<clears throat> so she goes to be with the kids, and now I'm in this tent all alone. Now, here's the thing. I'm thinking, if I leave this tent, all of our belongings, everything's just going to, fl- you know, be just ripped off the top of this hill. And uh, I said, I have to be a man and stay in this tent. I have to, you know, I have to hold the fort here. Maria's with the other kids. It's not going to blow away. She's okay. They're all right. But after a while, I was really scared. I felt for sure I was going to get blown into the valley by myself. I said, that's it. So I was a man, and I, uh, you know, I went and spent the time as a good dad with my kids and my wife protecting them. And I didn't tell them that I was really, really frightened, but I was scared. This wind was amazing. Unfortunately, both tents made it. I did leave that tent and, uh, and met with my family. Real men, uh, we, we have a hard time acknowledging our weakness. And so God, he will push us to the edge of our abilities. He will push us to the edge of our capacities. He will scare us. He will terrify us. But he does that uh, because he wants to reveal himself to us and he wants to show his power and his love for us. He meets Job out of the storm in Job 38. Out of the storm, he says, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And, you know, for chapters, God is revealing his creative power, his overwhelming uh, awesomeness to Job. Uh, we find when Moses meets uh, when Moses meets God in the wilderness and he sees him at the burning bush, uh, when he saw this, Moses was amazed and he goes over to look closely and God says, I am the God of the fathers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says, and Moses trembled, he quaked with fear. And uh, we find a few chapters later in Exodus 19, the 70 elders are on the mountain and the mountain is full of smoke and it's quaking and there's a blast of lightning and a loud trumpet and it says that everyone in the camp trembled. We find in Nahum that God says, his way is the way of wh- the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are dust, uh, of, are, are the dust of his feet. And we see when the disciples met Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration, and the voice comes out of the cloud and said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It says that the disciples fell face down on the ground and were terrified. And that is the appropriate response of, of limited, fragile, weak human people in the face of this awesome, almighty God. But this is what God says. This is what Jesus says. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. And so we find that the God who, who tests us and who will terrify us is a God who comforts us and who calls us not to fear because he is with us. And they were glad, it says, that they took him into the boat. In this confrontation, we see that God will not leave us alone in our test or in our fears, but he comes to us in the midst of the storm to offer supernatural help, supernatural pass. In Mark chapter 6, it says in the fourth watch of the night, he was about to pass them by, which tells us that Jesus intended for his disciples to see him clearly walking on the water, to make sure that they knew it was Jesus. He intended to pass them by which is an interesting phrase. When they did see him, 
Of course, they were scared and terrified, and they and Jesus immediately calmed their fears. It is I. Do not be afraid. And that word, it is I, is the same word that Moses heard from God, I am. When Moses, who should I say sent me? Say, I am. And Jesus saying, I am. Do not be afraid. I am the existing one. I always was. I had no beginning. I have no end. I am the creator. I am the Lord of the storm. I am. Do not be afraid. And so we find that God comes to test and terrify us, but he comes to comfort us. And just like he told Moses, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groan. I've come down to set them free. Deuteronomy 33 says, There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, uh, or Israel, who rides on the heavens to help you and on the clouds of his majesty. The God of the heavens is the God who rides the clouds, it says, to help his people. He comes to rescue and to save, and he is close to the broken heart. He comes to save those crushed and speared. There was a uh, story in the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the uh, stories, uh, the title, The Horse and His Boy, there's a boy named Shasta, and he was the key character. And uh, he, in this particular event, he was feeling extremely defeated. Uh, he, he, he felt like the most unlucky boy in the whole world, and he's walking through this dense, dark forest. It was life-threatening forest. The ice wind was ripping through that forest, and he was feeling overwhelmed. And all of a sudden, he felt someone, somebody, a giant presence walking beside him. He was initially frightened, and he felt this warm, gentle breath, and he soon realized it was Aslan the king of Narnia, the great lion that came to comfort and to rescue him. And so we have this Savior who comes to us in the midst of our storms, in the ice of, uh, of the winds that seek to destroy us, and Jesus meets us in that place to comfort and to reassure us. The disciples were straining at the oars, and Jesus comes and he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Do you hear Jesus' words coming to you to assure you when you feel overwhelmed by the forces, when you feel overwhelmed by the weight of the issues, uh, that you feel like you're drowning? Do you realize how close he is, how he rides the heavens to come after you? But while God comes and he rides the clouds to help his people, while Jesus walks on the water, to present himself to the disciples, he didn't get into the boat until they invited him. He didn't respond till they cried out to him. And so we find in this passage that Jesus waits for the invitation of his people. He waits for the prayers of his people. They cried out in Mark 6, and then he climbed into the boat with them. He says, I am, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, John 6 says. They were willing. Jesus did not force himself into that boat. It's interesting. He, he waited for their invitation. He was about ready to pass them by. And they cry out to him. In Matthew's account, there's the episode that uh, Dr. Paris had mentioned about Peter, when he sees Jesus, 
He says, Lord, tell me to come. Tell me to walk on the water. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat. And, of course, the disciples said, this is just like Peter. You know, he's always doing crazy stuff. And Peter's walking on the water towards Jesus. As soon as he sees the, the waves and the, and the storm and the winds, uh, he starts to look at those things, uh, and he starts to sink. And he starts to cry out to Jesus, and he cries out to Jesus. And Jesus, and he says, Lord, save me. And he catches him. And he told Peter, oh, you have a little faith. And he brings him, and they get into the boat. The storm is calm. God waits for us to cry out to him. God waits for our prayers. God is standing by to hear from you. He is near. He wants to comfort you. He wants you to know that he will help you, but you have to cry out. You have to pray. That is our responsibility. Now, where do, where do you get the notion of such a waiting God? I mean, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God never really waits for anybody. He is the one who always takes initiative. So how can I tell you that God waits for our, our cries or our prayers? Well, because the scriptures remind us for believers, he does that. Because people that have faith... He expects us to use that faith. And so like in Revelation chapter 3, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice, I will open the door and come in and sup with him and he with me. But, you, but he, we have to answer the door. He's knocking. He wants communion with us. He wants fellowship with us. But we have to take that initiative. And so Jesus asking his disciples uh, who claim his name, Will you open the door? Uh, will you cry out to me? I am here. John Wesley said, God does nothing but an answer to prayer. He is the total sovereign king. He has determined to wait for his redeemed children to cry out and to pray to him before he acts. That is an amazing thing. How thick-headed and callous heart we are when we try to through our own efforts, keep trying harder, and we strain at our own oars to try to fix things, and yet Jesus is standing right by, ready to help us if we would just cry out. Deuteronomy 4 says, What other nation is so great as to have their God near them the way our God is near us whenever we pray to him? You know, you think of the, the, the uh, song, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain. We bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And so the sooner that we cry out, the sooner we, we pray, the sooner God wants to reveal himself to us. And, and, and actually, there's two, there's two miracles in this passage. One is Jesus walking on the water, and the other is as soon as he gets into the boat, it says they immediately got to the other side. Somehow, in an instant flash, they went three and a half miles, and they got immediately. It was a transport system. You know, if Jesus wants you to get someplace fast, he can do that. But we need to cry out sooner, not later. We need to stop straining at our oars of self-engagement in order to allow his strength. We need to, to do that because God is attracted to weakness. It's not about the strength of our faith. It's not about the power of our prayer. It's about the strength of our Savior is about the power of his might, and he wants to engage us. I don't know what your storms are. 
Uh, some of you might be experiencing the storms of a strained marriage, of maybe a, a child that is in trouble or wandering from the faith. Maybe you're experiencing the storm of unemployment, financial needs, maybe health crisis, maybe a relational brokenness. God puts us and allows us to go through storms because he loves us and he is with us. And as we pray, he will meet us. There was a uh, pastor by the name of Gregory Frizzle. Uh, he was this pastor of this urban church. It was in a neighborhood that had a lot of gang activity. And, uh, but this church was under lots of attack. And this church was experiencing a great decline in its worshipers. Uh, there was division in the church. There was a, there was a, a, a legal suit against this church, a $2 million legal suit. And then there was some great moral leader uh, collapse of one particular leader in the church that, that was in the media for five years, every day. And this was a young pastor that just came to take this church. He was 26 years old. And he knew that unless God saved this church, it was over. But there were 80 people that decided they were going to pray every day uh, for 30 minutes and they gave a specific list, and the list was they were going to pray for lost people to come to know Christ, to be converted. Uh, they were going to pray for the unity of the body of Christ. They were going to pray for the financial health of that church. And they were going to pray that God would remove all of the accusations, the false accusations against the, 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 the church. And then, then there were prayer meetings that they gathered for prayer. And over four months, over a series of just intercessory prayer, this is what they found. There were 60 people that they were particularly praying for. 45 of them gave their lives to Christ. And some of them were very hard cases they've been praying for for years. Uh, there was unity in that body. There was explosive growth. God was bringing people to faith and into that church. Uh, the unbelieving lawyers who were, had this case against this church dropped a million-dollar uh, fee against the church. And all the accusations stopped. And this pastor, this young pastor, realized this was a work of God. And it was a work of God because these people cried out. They, they interceded. They, they, they threw themselves at the mercy of God, and God met them. Uh, next Saturday, we have actually a tr uh, training for prayer intercessors. We're going to have, after uh, both services, 15 minutes of prayer prayer invitation for anyone in our body that would just like a prayer uh, to be prayed for. And we're, ha we're training intercessors. Maybe you would like to be trained. It's just 15 minutes uh, on a particular Sunday. It's probably going to rotate once a month. Would you be willing to be trained to be a prayer intercessor? It'll be a great means of grace for a lot of people. But we need to be prayer intercessors all the time. We need to, we need to be a people that will recognize that God comes to us and he wants to meet us and he wants to grow us and he wants to get in your boat. But you've got to ask him. And when Jesus gets in your boat, you fly with him and you see powerful things through him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this uh, body and for giving us this, this text to remind us that you are the Lord of the storm, that you create you create the storms and you calm the storms. And that you love us so much that you'll put us and test us through the storms. You'll terrify us. You'll make us come to our wit's end and to the utter end of ourselves that you might reveal yourself strong and powerful. 
God, would you help us to come to you more quickly and to pray to you more fervently? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ask or imagine. To, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.